welcome back to another episode of the Field Guide Podcast. I'm your co-host, Nathan Droetz, local extension crops educator for Stearns, Benton, and Morrissey Counties. And with me, as always, is local extension educator, Claire Lacan. How are you doing today, Claire? I am well, Nathan. How are you doing? Not too bad. How's the weather here? Pretty good. Can't complain too much other than it's a bit windy. We're here recording in November and uh, hoping for a little more moisture yet this fall, personally, just to get a little more soil recharge. Yeah. How's that? How's that been going? Uh, We are still a little behind on our annual precipitation. Really nothing compared to you guys up north. Uh, So I feel guilty even complaining, but you know, ideally, Mother Nature would give us a couple more inches here. We're actually not doing too bad ourselves up there. For the most part, we have enough soil or enough moisture down into the soil profile at this at this point that I think we're going to be fine heading into at least early next year. But we could do well with some level of rainfall. So, well, with us today, we have some new guests on the the podcast. Claire, do you want to introduce them? Yes, we are fortunate enough to be joined by farmers down here in Rice County. So we are joined by Jim Perfist and his sons, Matt and Mark. So thanks for being with us today, guys. Thanks for the opportunity. I'm Matt Perfist. I'm the youngest one here. I am 28 years old. I currently uh, live in Faribault, and I just came back and started farming about three months ago with Dad. Um, He'll introduce himself here in a little bit, but uh, excited to be on the show today and appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, I'm Jim Perfist. I guess I'm the dad of these two boys. I am 67 years of age. I started farming as soon as I got out of high school, and I've been out here ever since. And I'm Mark Perfist, um, 36 years old, just had a birthday the other day. I currently work at Compure Financial. I've worked there for 13 years, um, and then run some land uh, with with uh, my dad and Matt and uh, help out on the farm between my real job in town. (laughs) Hang on, what's your real job in town? (laughs) Well, depends on the day. Well, the compere thing. Oh, okay, okay. All right, all right. It depends on the day when when I answer what my real job is. Okay, (laughs) just had to check. (laughs) So thanks, and Jim, maybe this question would be best for you to start off then. Could you tell us a little bit about the history of your operation and how you got started right out of high school? Sure. I'm actually the fifth generation to be here. The farm was started in 1857, so this would be our 165th crop that we'll be planting on some of the same ground here. As we started out of high school, we formed a partnership with my father, Clarence, and my brother, Joe, and myself. And that ran till, uh, oh golly, about 1998. And then... uh, My brother Joe decided to leave the operation, and my dad and I continued on, and then uh, eventually dad got old enough where my wife and I became owners of the operation. So throughout the years of growing here, uh, we, we formed a partnership when we first started. And my dad had a no growth contract in that, he didn't want to grow anymore. But we never switched around our tax structures through all them years, so the IRS made them take the, take the growth within the farm. So we started another entity of an LLC in the mid-90s. And currently we farm with a partnership, an LLC, and, you know, the uh, Purpose Farms, LLP, I should say, which is a partnership, and Purposed Ag, LLC, which is a 
limited liability companies. So, and that's still going today. Well, that's really interesting that you mention business entity and kind of structure of the business. Where would you advise people to pursue figuring out what entity might be best for their operation? Well, I think as this farm evolves or any farming operation involves, you need to surround yourself with the right people. Definitely, I'd you know consult the tax uh, tax person or your tax person. I'd, I'd use extension. You have to have flexibility within any program or any company you set up. I did not add, but we have a purpose grain corporation. And that one currently has given us some problems trying to transfer that out. We're uh, struggling. Uh, we would like to dissolve that, but it's all a taxable asset over there at this point. So uh, it's, it's important uh, to surround yourself. And it won't be probably cheap to set up a company, but get to the right people and do it right the first time. I'm going to interject there for just a second. Uh, it's, it's probably uh, important just to talk about the long-term effect of setting up different entities too. I mean, we we've, have a few different, uh, few different paths we've went down and I, th- yeah, I wasn't around in, in all the discussions, obviously. It was before my time, before I was back on the farm. But um, you know, at the time, I'm sure it was the right decision for you know, each different entity. But um, the thing to keep in mind is when them decisions are made, they have long tails, right? I mean, they, they stick around for a long time and even, you know, we've even had discussions with our accountants and, and tax preparer, you know, about, you know, changing things around now. And, and it's not as easy to change, you know, it's probably easier to set them up than it is to change them sure. down the road. So make sure you surround yourself with, you know, that group of professionals Dad talked about and really think about how you want things structured. And because it's not as easy just to quick dip out of one and jump into another and, and change things around down the road if you want, if you want to. Sure. Yeah, that's a good point that it's a long-term decision. So really go into it with your eyes wide open. Good advice. And it's nice to have the flexibility you need to bring different generations into this operation if it continues on. And yeah, Mm -hmm. flexibility is great. Yep. And like what Mark said, the long tail. I mean, easy up front, it can be very hard on the backside if you do it wrong. So, I mean, make sure you spend the time up front and the money up front to get yourself set up right for the long term. Other things just on history with, with Matt and I, we're seven years apart. I'm seven years older than Matt. I uh, purchased my first farm when I believe I was a senior in high school. And then dad was like, yep, you got to farm it on your own. So we started just kind of laying in some of our own farms and acres at that point. And then Matt joined later. And we, you know, so we've, we've kind of added that extra layer of complexity when we, when we go to do our books at the end of the end of the year, cause we kind of run you know, separate books amongst all of us and, and separate operations, but we farm it all together and, uh, you know, share labor, share equipment, all that stuff. Um, so when we talk about history, you know, that's how Matt and I kind of first got started with a lot of help from dad. Yeah. And I'd say for my history is farming, um, obviously Mark likes to round down on seven years. It's more like seven and a half, you know, if you're going to be technical. <laughs> um, I got started, I think, either freshman in in college, and it was mostly due to grandpa got me started farming. And from there, like Mark said, we kind of farm things on shares. We have stuff independently and just been able to pick up some acres here and there over the years. Um, So it's been awesome. And dad's been a big pusher into, you know, you got to do your own books. You got to do your own financials. You know, we get to make our own decisions as far as seed and fertilizer and what we want to do. So 
Um, you do have independence there from what everyone else is doing, so it kind of gets you involved and lets you start making the decisions early, and that was, that was awesome. So something you guys mentioned, how do you guys keep everything separate? Because it sounds like you two have stuff, and then the three of you have stuff together, and you all share equipment. How do you what, – what do those record books actually look like? I always laugh at this one. So Dad's – I always make fun of Dad, but I bet he's got a 1,000 spreadsheets in his computer right now for when he counted them. So it, uh, but it's a lot of spreadsheets. QuickBooks obviously helps out big time, and a lot of communication between you know everyone. We like to have meetings where we all sit down and – you all kind of know your own operation, but you know, you're, you're very aware of what's going on with everyone else's operation as well, too. So open communication, a lot of Excel spreadsheets, a lot of time in the office. QuickBooks helps out big time, too. And part of that, I mean, growing up, it was always completely transparent. I mean, I remember sitting at the desk with Dad and running the, the 10 key calculator and, you know, just at, you know, he just he was always completely transparent with all numbers, all decisions, you know, even from, you know, eight years old, you know, just not that we were making decisions at eight years old, but he completely just let us do whatever and was completely transparent and, and really tried to educate us on that. And I think that has helped a lot just in how we maybe think about the world, how we manage things, um, how we look at things. As far as keeping things separate, I, I should point out, I think our crop insurance uh, agent hates us because we <laughs> have so many different structures and shares and he's, uh, he's awesome. He does a good job, but, uh, yeah, I think he cringes when we start talking about acreage reports and, and uh, you know, how we have things structured. So, I think that's really cool that you've been involved since a young age. And I guess, Jim, did that kind of come from the fact that you went through the transition with your father and maybe him with his father. And so you had a little bit of experience uh, going through kind of the estate planning and farm transition before. Well, Dad was probably the most optimistic person I ever knew. And dad passed or left us a few years back. But when I was in 10th grade, dad got elected into the Minnesota State Senate. So as the sessions ran late or whatever, I did a lot of the chores throughout the winter when he was up there, uh, get up before school and you'd do the hogs. And we had beef cattle at that point. And we still have beef cattle, but the hogs have left us since. But yeah, dad, dad pushed us to, to do our own thing. And I think it's great. These guys, you can talk to these guys now, or I'm talking to my sons here, but you can talk to these guys and, God, they're spot on with what's going on in the area and, and their decisions they're making, I think, are good. And I'm just happy they still come back and ask Dad a question once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really cool. I mean, you, you mentioned you got your first farm at 18. Was that just you, or were you two, did you two go in together with that? No, that was that was a chunk that uh, came up for sale from a landlord, and and so mom and dad kind of helped me with the the financing side of things, and and uh, I purchased that. So yep. Okay, and and I guess for me, a lot of people when they see that and they see the age of eighteen, and they look at you making a huge purchase like that, what's going through your mind at that point? buying a farm like that yeah that's I should have like journaled or something during that time yeah I, I think a lot of it was you know guidance from dad I mean he just he was basically like hey you should do this it's a good decision here's you know here's how I would look at it and I, I'm sure he laid out the numbers and, and went through it that way but uh yeah that's that's a good question I wish I remembered back exactly what was going through my head at that time are you saying, just to clarify, that Matt, you didn't buy in at 10 and a half years old? No, no, I did not. <laughs> I, was, I was getting all excited here. You know, you got people that 10, you know, got 10 and 18 here. 
going at it. <laughs> it would have taken a lot of rock picking hours to pay off that farm. <laughs> right, fair, right. <laughs> fair point. But you know, at least at least in this area here, there's plenty of rock to pick. Oh, so there's a lot, too many. Job security as a as a young guy there. Yeah, yeah. I remember going out and, and hoeing weeds in non at that point non Roundup ready soybeans in Missouri. That's a job that I don't miss, but I'm really glad it was there when I was a kid. We did a lot of bean walking. We hired all the neighbor kids, every kid that would want to work. We'd have a crew of 25 out there trying to walk through these beans and every year. Yeah, I, it was one of the last farmers there to not adopt it, because I'm not quite that old, but it was, he was one of the last farmers there, and, and I worked for him through most of high school and, and out through that, and it was, it was a pretty good experience, but that's one of those things where it just it's a lot like picking rock. It is, you just... You don't miss the job when it's not there, but as a kid, I was pretty happy it was. You know, it's funny, you go to a neighborhood wedding now or, you know, a festival, and these kids still come up and we talk about picking rock and hoeing beans, and yeah, it's it's quite a... I think it motivates them to go to school, is what yes. I think it does. <laughs> yes. They're probably thankful more than anything. That's funny, just last night we had, um, we Matt and I have both helped with the livestock judging team in Rice County here, and... One of the old uh, kids that was on the livestock judging team came. He go, he's at uh, Texas A&M for school right now, and he, he was nice. back for Thanksgiving. So we had him out for supper last night. And uh, he said his first job was picking rock. And I, and I was like, it, Tar Tud is who it was. And I said, Tar, do you remember what you got paid? And he just smiled, and he goes, I don't know, but it wasn't enough. <laughs> That's all he said. <laughs> that, that, that much I'd agree with. Yeah, I could see that. Builds character. Yes. Right? I got a little story about being hoeing. We always fed the kids when they came out. We had water and everything. But on Tuesday, our local A&W restaurant had Coney Days for 29 cents, I think it was. The first time we went in and bought Coney Dogs from, I think we ordered like 60 of them, they came out and really talked to us about, if you guys want this many in the future, you got to put an order in. <laughs> but, which we did going forward, but it's, it was nice to give the kids something hot to eat once in a while. Yeah. Well, I think we've, we've glossed over your family history. Let's talk a little bit about your practices. I know, Claire, you kind of brought up a little bit of that. Yeah, so I'd like to give them the opportunity to talk a little bit about some of your tillage and you know some of the other practices you've implemented. I don't want to give it all away. So go ahead and tell us what you've done and kind of how it's changed over time. Well, when I started... When I built my first basin, or we built our first basin, that was uh, kind of an eye-opener for us as far as soil erosion and soil loss. And after we got that built, we really pushed the tiling. Currently, uh, we are pattern tiled on probably 97% of the land that we operate. What we own is 100% pattern tiled. But... Uh, we're working with landowners, and if it's not tiled or if it needs tile, we'll tile it, providing we run it for so many years and the payback comes back to us. So tile has been a huge deal for us, which has allowed us to move into more conservation tillage, a little bit of no-till, but I'll let the boys talk on on the current farming practices. I grew up with a moldboard plow and we still have one in the shed and I tried trading it off the last couple of years and our dealer doesn't even want it. So <laughs> the plows are kind of a thing of the past here, which I'm happy about, but conservation's coming in. Um, 
probably yeah. more so. For our listeners, could you just tell a little bit about why pattern tile is important for you? You know, just a little bit about our soils here and maybe why, and Matt, you might be, we'll talk about this, but why those conservation practices and reduced tillage is important for these soils. Yeah, I can go on that. So for around here, we're very fortunate with our soil type. Um, we're very heavy soil with a clay base. Most of our soils, I'd say our biggest thing with moisture is more of getting it away. Um, in normal years now, we're coming off a drought year. So this year we're obviously not the case, but for the most part with that heavy clay base soil, we can retain water a lot better. And that's actually more of our crop limiting factor is too much moisture. So doing the pattern tiling, basin work, things like that, it definitely, that's probably our biggest impact as far as yield goes. And that's, I mean, dad started, I don't know how many, 20 years ago or so, probably tiling 30 years ago. And that's been the biggest factor for us. And that's one thing where I would say it's, it's definitely awesome that he's done so much since uh, even Mark and I have came back. And then I would say just going back into the tillage conversation a little bit, I would even say as of probably 10, 15 years ago, we were much more conventional tillage system. Um, a lot of ripping. Um, I don't remember seeing, I remember seeing some fields with plowing, but for the most part, we did a lot of ripping, I would say 10 years ago. And I would say throughout the last 10 years, it's been a gradual change to more conservation tillage. So um, especially when Mark and I kind of came back, we've done a lot more vertical tilling. Uh, that's been a newer thing for us in the last two, three years. Um, we've dipped our toe quite a bit into no-till, some years a lot more than other years. And it's, it's had varied results, I would say, depending on the field. Um, still overall good practice. And a lot of that stemmed from more of a cost savings, I would say, to begin with. We kind of adopted when the commodity prices were low, and it was more labor, fuel, equipment depreciation, things like that, that kind of pushed us that direction. But definitely we're seeing the results of soil health as well, too, with that. So it's, it's kind of... We're really liking it. Um, we're trying to find ways to continue on that path and then, you know, maintain our yields we've seen from conventional tillage, I would say. If I, if I could add in quickly, I think one of the big benefits in tile that we've seen is when we do get these bigger rainfalls, the soil has more water holding capacity. That, that's a real benefit. It helps us with some of this uh, runoff or with runoff comes erosion, but with a combination of the tillage we're doing now and the tiling and the, the structures that have been built out there, we're seeing very little erosion on these farms currently. And I should, uh, I'll just touch maybe on the thought process of the tillage practices as we implemented them. I mean, it, it initially started as reducing erosion and I would say, um, just the, the financial economic impact of, uh, of doing, implementing those practices. So, you know, as we, I, I like to think of ourselves as numbers people, and we talked about dad spreadsheets and, and running the numbers seven ways till Sunday. So when we, when we first implemented it, it was, I mean, we did that because of financial reasons. And, you know, we pride ourselves in thinking that, you know, our goal is the most net return per acre, right? I mean, it, it's not always just about, you know, highest yield, whatever. Um, so we, we know we may, you know, in certain years, we might give up some yield because of the, the tillage practice we did. But if we keep in mind the goal of net return per acre, um, we found a lot of benefits that way. You're, you're reducing passes over the field. You're reducing, you know, around here, we talked about picking rocks. You're reducing, you know, labor out there, picking rocks, uh, that sort of thing. So that was the, you know, prize that we looked at when we first implemented those practices. And the, and the technology equipment too, especially with the no-till. I go back to no-till. We do a lot of no-till beans. 
or some no-till beans. And I would say the technology and this equipment has helped out greatly. Two, three years ago, we updated our planter where we were able to switch from no-till to conventional tillage so much easier versus what we were before. And the guidance will be able to go right down the rows. There's just a lot of been a technology improvements with the technology that we've you know, bought into, I guess, that, that's helped that transition a ton on our operation. The one downfall is, uh, is probably the matriarch of our family, uh, Grandma Rosie, did a lot of our, she did a lot of our tillage even up until, you know, a couple of years ago. She's 92? 92. 92. And, uh, I mean, she did a pile of our tillage. And so she's, she's out of a job now, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, She yeah. called me every day this fall looking for something see to if, do. Yeah, so see if she, there's something she's to do. missing it. Yeah, she's, she still helps out around here, but uh, she, she taught us a lot of lessons growing up in the tractor cab doing tillage. It seems, it seems like you guys need to get her uh, direct seed or drill seeder so that way she can put in your cover crops, right? Right, yeah. There you yeah. go. Yeah. 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 Speaking of mom here, I, I got a little story here. We used to pull 14 bottom international plows, and they would, we had difficulty getting our trash through them, so they would plug here and there. We went to the to a different brand, a John Deere 10 bottom. And I'll never forget the day we hooked up to her, hooked her tractor up to that plow. And she actually got mad because she wasn't getting enough done out there with that 10 bottom compared to the 14 bottoms. So <laughs> yeah, she loves, she loves to be out in the field. Yeah, so one thing that stood out to me when you were mentioning some of the benefits that have come with reducing your tillage was rock picking. So that's something I've heard a little bit, kind of more and more, it sounds like, just kind of anecdotally, there's not a lot of data out there, but farmers who are reducing their tillage are saying they're spending less time picking rock. So it sounds like you guys are experiencing that as well? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) And the vertical tillage for sure too. I mean, you think of the concept of vertical tillage, a lot of discs that push down, right? And we're trying to minimize compaction, but also it pushes down rocks too, is what we've kind of found. And Rock picking adds up when you're getting crews out there and uh, tractor drivers. You know, normally when we'd be doing conventional tillage, we had four tractors with wagons with three people on the wagons picking rock. And that was probably a week, week and a half until we got all, you know, the rock picked. And we're really seeing, and we're still keeping up with rock picking the best we can, but uh, we're really seeing a decrease in rock picking, which, I mean, it's not fun labor like we talked about before, but it's, it's helping the bottom line too. Well, right, like a lot of repair costs, usually kind of tie back to damage to your implements from rocks so do you think you're seeing any you know numbers guide do you think you're seeing any influence there i would i'll speak on that i we're really not seeing any difference except for the the amount of time we're spending out there because when we were doing the conventional till we would be out there with two mechanical rock pickers and then once we dug the field before planting, we wouldn't, I wouldn't let the rock pickers back out because of compaction. So then we'd run around with like the little ATVs and pick them up in front of the planter. Sure. And after we planted, after you had a good rain where they, the rocks got washed off, then we went back in with wagons and, and help, and we'd pick every 60 feet. We'd just follow the planter tracks around, and we, we, we'd pick everything. So we, we didn't have much of an issue as far as mechanical breakdowns, I would say because we were gotcha. trying to do the best job we could picking them up. And then we got payloaders and we got back holes and we're, if we couldn't wiggle one, we'd, we'd get it out of the field. We just, we've got some big rocks piled up here and there that needed to come out of the fields. 
Well, and that's interesting. Something else that I've, I'm always interested to hear about when we start talking about adopting conservation systems is the shifts in integrated pest management and what that looks like. And so I'm hoping maybe you guys could touch a little bit on, you know, what, what are you seeing on that front? We, especially from a weed insect sort of situation. Yeah, I can go a little bit. I'll start this conversation because this could take a while if we wanted to. So with this conservation tillage, I mean, obviously we're seeing a little bit probably more weed pressure and we're a unique situation too with our operation. We've been conventional corn for a couple of years now, and we're also incorporating conventional beans or non-GMO beans in the mix as well too. So our weed management and pest management is probably a little bit more unique than most. We're out there in the summer. We, we have an agronomist that scouts our field quite a bit too. So, I mean, we're out there quite a bit, but it does incorporate more of a emphasis on pre-emergence herbicide burn down. Got to make sure you're, you're timely on your post applications, not letting them weeds. I mean, we know if a rag gets more than six inches tall, we don't have, especially with the non-GMO we're going with, we don't have a rescue operation. So, I mean, we need to make sure we're spraying timely um, and, and scouting as often as we can. As far as pest management goes, you know, I, I guess we really haven't struggled in the past with pest management. We're laying insecticide down with our planter. But other than that, I mean, if we get aphids that come through, we got to spray aphids. Spider mites, we've struggled a little bit with as well, too, around the borders with trees. But for the most part, we've been fortunate that we haven't really had a widespread pest issue. Now, Dad, you might have a different story on that, but since I've been farming, I don't really remember one. We're seeing more dandelions coming along. So we went to a fall, fall spraying operation on that. And also a few more thistles, I'd have to say, around the edges, too, which we're incorporating chemicals now in our routine program to control the thistles. But otherwise, it's been kind of the same for us as it's been in the past. Yeah, those two with the, you're exactly right, with the thistles and the dandelions, more than rooted, deep-rooted plants. I mean, the tillage isn't taking them out, so we got to rely on fall spraying on spots, too. Right. Yep. Well, that's interesting because I know in this area, especially, you get start moving north, it does shift a little bit, but you mentioned ragweed and not the one weed that I'm more comfortable with, which is water hemp. And so do you guys have a, a water hemp issue out here or, uh, you know, some of the smaller seeded weeds, common lamb's quarters or something like that? It's it's on our radar. I think <laughs> water, hemp, <laughs> water hemp is going to become our biggest. I'd say right now ragweed is our biggest issue. Ragweed in the beans and our grasses and our corn because we're conventional corn. So woolly cup grass and our corns are probably our biggest biggest yield robber on the edges. But I think water hemp in three years, I think that's we're going to be saying water hemp instead of ragweed in our beans. And it's going to be, you know, a lot of that's going to be, it's, it's just a later germination weed. So I think we're going to have to figure out a way to get out there you know, find the chemical mix that we can get out there later and get that late flush of water hemp. Well, I believe we have come up time and I think that's a good place to stop for now. Thanks again for joining us here on the podcast. If you'd like more information, go to z.umn.edu backslash local. If you'd like to find myself or Claire's contact information, or if you have any ideas or other individuals you'd like us to interview for this podcast. Uh, Thanks for joining us again for this episode. And see you next time.